chapter 9. We're into the belly of the beast, so to speak. We're dropping into the last half of Romans chapter 9, which is still actually part of the beginning of a very clever, a very thorough response to this question of why are so many Gentiles coming to this faith, this faith in Jesus, but so many Jews aren't. And we, we already read it's because of pride in their, in the, in, they have pride in themselves. Uh, going back, actually, to the text that precedes ours today, Paul reminds the reader that the Jews are the runt of the litter, so to speak. And their actual election as the people, their selection as the people of God, had nothing to do with how good they lived their lives. They weren't any more special than anyone else. In fact, by the world's way of evaluating people, they were the runt of the litter. They're boasting in their ethnicity, and they're boasting in their good works of following the law, made them blind to Jesus, to seeing Jesus as the Messiah. A view that they, let, that they took was they looked to their own goodness for salvation rather than to God. And Paul in our text today is going to continue uh, with some more examples, again using the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, to explain the validity of the New Testament or the New Covenant. Romans chapter 9, verses 16. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the Scripture says to, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose, that I may, might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. We'll pause there. There are several mistakes that many readers make from even just the text that we just read. First mistake is this. The thinking that Paul is talking, his primary focus, is about individual selection or election, a personal salvation. Although it does lead to that application, Paul's focus is actually on God's election or selection of a vocation, a role, an office that someone is to take. Some will call it vocational election. Others will call it national election if you want to get into some theological argument stuff in the different literature. And it is the way that God actually elects or selects and interacts with a person or even a whole nation to fulfill a certain role, to complete a certain job that God has in mind, that God will actually select one person over another or one nation over another to, to, to shape history in a certain way so that it might produce a certain result that God has in mind. It's how God raises a person to an office to be used by God for one eternal reason or another. Now, if all of this is sounding very distant and abstract to you, I get it. But let's bring it to a modern-day example that many, some of us might feel very passionate about. Why did God raise Justin Trudeau to be our prime minister? I use this example neither as a slam nor an endorsement of him as a person or even his performance in office, but biblically... And practically speaking, God put Justin Trudeau in that position. And on this side of Christ's return, 
we might never understand all the reasons. In fact, we won't all understand all the reasons for that or anything, and maybe even none of the reasons. But that doesn't change the fact that God has him in that office for eternal reasons. This is vocational election. Now, I could hypothesize with you all day long as to how Trudeau is being used by God and for God's eternal glory, but that's not our focus today. And in general, if that's what we spend a lot of our time doing, trying to figure out the mind of God for something that we either love or hate, it usually isn't a profitable use of our time. The point is, is that God works his plans through raising certain people into certain positions to serve a certain eternal purpose. That's the first mistake that we make, is thinking it's just about the individual and not primarily about the office. Second mistake that we make in reading this text is when we read that God, when we read that God hardens someone's heart, we can't assume, and in fact, the context of our scripture, the context doesn't even permit it, that this means that God is sentencing that hardened person to hell. Now, different theological camps will argue back and forth over whether or not God violated Pharaoh's free will and unilaterally or arbitrarily just hardened Pharaoh's heart, or whether or not God took a hard-hearted man and simply poured gasoline on what was already burning as an act of mercy of accelerating Pharaoh's burning desires and at the same time activating God's purposes through Pharaoh. I think of the famous line from Joseph in Genesis where he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done now, is being done, the saving of many lives. Personally, I see in Scripture that God doesn't violate people's free will. I, in fact, I like in discussions um, in seminary and in Bible college, I used to love poking my Calvinist and reformer, uh, reformed uh, friends, asking them questions, smug questions like this. Why do you have such a small view of God's sovereignty that he can't work alongside and in partnership with the gift of free will that he gave to humanity? Do you think that God can only see into the future a little bit? Do you think that he only knows the mind and the heart of every man based on what they post on social media? Or does God know every part of every single human better than we know ourselves and know our end from our beginning? Is God limited in his bandwidth? Does his hard drive fill up with all of the data that he has to entertain in order to make sure that all things work towards his eternal purposes? That's the second mistake we make is assuming that when God hardens someone's heart, that it's just like he's writing them off. He's just arbitrarily saying, you're written off. Third mistake we make is we think that when God hardens a heart, that this hardening is permanent or it is eternal. And while it can be, as we'll read in the chapters ahead, we'll see in this specific example that it's actually God um, is hardening people's heart because he wants them to come to salvation. He wants them to be saved. In fact, it's God's desire in hardening somebody's heart that they will come to salvation. <laughs> Furthermore, when God hardens a heart, 
it is always an act of mercy. He's either putting uh, us out of our misery or he is pulling us out of our misery, usually because we're blind to something. Is it not true that our suffering and pain is often the only way that we'll actually cry out to God? Think about your prayer life. When is your prayer life strongest? Most likely, your prayer life is strongest when you are in the greatest need. Is that not true? Is it not true that God disciplines the ones He loves? Again, God knows our heart. He knows the future. He knows our future decisions. And He is always actively working in our lives and through our lives to give us and others every opportunity to see Him and to receive Him as our merciful King. So that on that day, when every one of us will stand before our Maker and give an account for how we lived our lives, there will be no one that is without excuse. No one that is without excuse. Instead, our only plea and our only claim to righteousness will be the name of Jesus. So in the case of Pharaoh... If God is going to take his hard heart and and make it even harder, can Pharaoh really be blamed for all of the the things that happen that follow that? Or in our text today where he's bringing up the hardening of the Jews and why they're not coming to faith in Jesus and they're still proud people. If the Jews are rejecting Jesus and God knew that this would be the case because he set them up like that, Furthermore, he was even an active force or agent in hardening their hearts towards Jesus. And we'll read later, it's so that the Gentiles might come to faith. And then the Gentiles coming to faith might drive the Jews to jealousy. And then they'll come to faith. If all of this is because God is working a much larger plan through humanity, aren't we all just pawns then? And if Pharaoh and Israel are merely pawns, Are they to blame for the moves that they make? Shouldn't they be off the hook and God be blamed for the evil that they do? It's the same line of thinking or argument when people blame God for evil in the world. After all, didn't God create Satan? After all, um, didn't he know that uh, by putting the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden that, that humanity would use that as the opportunity to rebel. He didn't have to create Satan. He didn't have to create Pharaoh. He didn't have to create Hitler. Didn't God make each person unique? He's the, the reason for the, 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 way that we, the way that we tick, so to speak. Isn't God to blame for all the evil in the world? Paul replies in verse 19 and following to this line of thinking. He says, One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and 
make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he said in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have, been, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become, uh, would have been like, sorry, um, Gomorrah. I'm going to pause there. In this string of quotations from the Old Testament, beginning with Isaiah and Jeremiah's use of the potter, and then Hosea's use of election, and then Isaiah's use of the remnant, and then Sodom and Gomorrah, Paul answers this question, this passing of the blame to God for all of the world's evils, the passing of the blame for my hard heart is his doing. He answers it in a number of ways. First, and perhaps most sobering, he says, who are you to question God? We live in such an individualistic, self-centered, self-glorifying society that we honestly think, one, we have the capacity... And two, we have the right to question God's decisions, his wisdom, his judgment. We think that on the day that he returns to judge the living and the dead, that we might be like a smug Peter Ducey grilling a smug Corrine Jean-Pierre, as though we are the ones who will judge God. Oh, I've got some questions for you, God. I've been looking forward to this day of judgment. That on the day of the Lord's return, our position will be that of gotcha journalism, where we hold God to account for our mistakes and our expectations of him, that we will prove him wrong and us right. Do we really think that's how it is and how it will be? Paul reminds us, we are the clay. He is the potter. We are the creation. He is the creator. We are the servant. He is the master. The arrogance, the foolishness, to think that God owes us an answer or that his judgment can be or should be questioned, to even have that notion or that attitude, we do not know who God is. And we do not know who we are. On that day in his presence, standing before him, we will be undone. If you don't know what that means, you'll be calling for some adult diapers. <laughs> and I think that's why Paul actually writes at the end of chapter 11 in this letter. He writes, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable. His judgments and his paths beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor 
Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. To Him be glory forever, Paul writes, Amen. That's the first answer that Paul gives. Is God to be blamed for the evil in this world, even though because he's an active part of it and he created us? The second answer from Paul is this. Even though God has the right to do whatever he wants, God doesn't harden anyone's heart that doesn't want to be hardened or hasn't been warned. The quotation of the passage from Isaiah and then the use of the clay and the potter from Jeremiah 18 and 19 provides this greater context wherein we read that God shapes the clay based on how actually the the clay wants to be shaped. And he says, if you repent, I'll reshape you towards an honorable use. But if you don't repent, then you're going to be used for dishonorable, evil things in this world, and I'll still get the glory for it. He'll reveal his glory through even dishonorable or evil uses of our humanity. Nothing goes to waste with God. He even uses evil for eternal good. Third answer that Paul gives us, again using quotes from Hosea and Isaiah, Paul continues to argue that God can have mercy on whoever he wants. I think of that parable, it always used to drive me nuts. Uh, the parable in Matthew 20 of the workers in the vineyard. You know the one where um, some guys come to work for, for the boss in the vineyard and, and he says, I'm going to pay you X amount of money if you work eight hours for me. And, and they work eight hours for him. But others join in the harvest in working later in the day. They come, they come to work late. And, and, and the boss pays all of the workers, no matter how much they worked that day, the exact same wages. It drives me nuts when I read that parable. (laughs) But it reminds me of this, because the boss's answer is God's answer to all of this, you know, unjustness in this world or this disparity that we might see. And he says, don't I have the right to do whatever I want with my money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Similarly, just as Israel needed rescuing, He planned all along to use Israel's example and even their hardening and their delivery eventually of the gospel through Jesus to rescue the Gentiles. And Paul's going, why Israel? Why Jews? Are you so upset that so many Gentiles are coming to faith that are being adopted into your family, the family of God? Yeah, they weren't born of your Jewish ancestry. And yes, they they didn't even know the law, let alone live by it. But why would you be jealous of or question the generosity of God who would bestow upon all people regardless of whether or not they were born into the right family or have said or have done the right things, the gift, the inheritance of salvation? Why would you be upset about that? Can God not show mercy upon whoever he wants to show mercy? Fourth answer that Paul gives is Paul's quote of Isaiah and the recollection of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, it comes from Genesis 18 and 19, where in that story, God tells Abraham that he's going he's gonna to wipe out these, this, the, these two cities in the region because they're just so wicked. Uh, they've just turned their heart uh, away from God. 
I mean, men were, were raping men. That's where we get the term sodomy from. And, and, and Abraham says, I, uh, do you really have to wipe out all the towns? What if there's some good people, some righteous people in there? And God says, yeah, I'll, you know, for their sake, I won't wipe, wipe out, you know, everyone. And, and, and Abraham obviously knows that his nephew Lot lives in Sodom. And Lot's family, and he doesn't want to see his family wiped out along with everybody else. And so uh, God does. He, he, he delays the, the judgment for a little bit, and he provides an opportunity to rescue Lot and his family, get them out of there before judgment is enacted. And in the recall of this account, we see that God extends mercy to those who respond in faith to the invitation to be rescued. But to those who continue in wickedness, he will bring judgment. Furthermore, we read that God will allow a whole lot of evil to continue on for a time if it means the saving of just a few. Or put another way, if God allows evil to continue, continue on. Sorry, I lost my place there. If God allows evil to continue on, it is not because he wants evil to flourish. It is out of his mercy even for just a few. And perhaps most importantly, we can never think that it is our faith that saves us in the sense that we had the great idea to go to God, to cry out to Him. That it was in our wisdom or our strength to turn to God. If it weren't for God's mercy, we would all end up like Sodom and Gomorrah. Our faith is always a response to His invitation, to His initiation. In response to his gift of mercy, his revelation of his son hanging on the cross in our place. It was his idea. It was his will. It was his wisdom and his strength that saves us. And Paul will close this chapter by highlighting this very reality, verses 30 and following. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it by faith, not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. God is saving Gentiles back here in Paul's day in the church in Rome. Not because they think they have earned it or deserve it, but rather they can see that they are undeserving. And they call out, to him in, uh, call out to him in faith to a merciful God. But the Jews are stuck in salvation by works. I can earn my way. I've earned my way. I'm going to inherit uh, my portion. It's automatic. And yet just as one choice from humanity... One choice to trust in self, put humanity in this mess back in the Garden of Eden and bring judgment and the uh, curse of sin, so too does one choice to trust in God get us out of this mess and avoid judgment and receive the blessing. I'm going to sneak into chapter 10 here as you draw to, to the conclusion. Brothers, he writes, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for the Israelites for the Israelites, is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. 
since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, who is Christ. Christ is the end of the law, so that, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. If we think that salvation has anything to do with what we've done, we have faith in ourselves. If we think that salvation has everything to do with the mercy of God and His generosity to welcome any and all who will believe in His mercy, we have faith in Him and through Him our salvation. Maybe today you're stumbling over Jesus. Maybe you can't get over the fact that God declares you innocent, righteous, pure, holy, blameless, simply because you've put your faith in Jesus. It can't be that simple. It can't be that good. It can't be that easy. And yet it is. It is that good. He is that good. Or maybe... Maybe you're more like a Jew. The Jews of this, of many of the Jews of this day, even today. Maybe you want to bring your accolades, your intelligence, your ideas, your wisdom, your achievement, your pride into heaven. Look how much I did for you, Lord. Look at what you owe me. That's the way that you're going to you're going to get into right relationship with God, and enter through the the, the, the doors to the kingdom of heaven. They are not enough to get you in. And therefore, they are useless. Paul says, consider them rubbish. Maybe you think that you are a good person, and therefore you are deserving of heaven. But you, anyone, standing before a holy God, you are not a good person. That is not the way, by God's standard, he will see you. And his standard and his view is the only view and standard that matters. Or maybe you think you've got something against or on God. He owes you salvation. He's going to have to account for some things that he let happen in my life. Or he let me down because I had an expectation, a presumption about him and his ways and, and how he was to work in my life. And today, you need to know, if that's you, that you are the clay and he is the potter. And in this sense, Jesus will be a stumbling block to you. Because you have deemed yourself more righteous and wise and all-knowing than him. And it is the same kind of pride that caused humanity to sin with in the beginning, thinking we know better than God. When the way of faith is to see his nail-scarred hands, to see in them the punishment that you deserved, and to see in the cross his posture and his provision of his merciful love towards you, a love and a holiness that meet in the person of Jesus, that humbles our pride and puts us in a place of, who am I to question this kind of God? I trust you, Lord, with even the vilest, most evil and painful parts of my life, that you actually have my eternal good at heart, and you will work all things out 
and to that end. I'd like, no, I'd love to understand why you allow certain things to happen. But I realize that your ways are higher than mine, and I will submit myself to the potter's vision for my life. Paul is saying, don't be like the Jew who comes to God with a list of demands on how he is to rescue them, thinking that God is obligated to save us. Rather, be like the Gentiles who know that they do not deserve to be saved, but see in Jesus the design, the desire, and the delivery of a God who extends mercy and grace to any and all who will believe. God will not force you in what you are to believe. He won't bully you into what decision you are, you, are, you are to make in response to who He is and to what He's done for you. But He'll do everything He can to move in your life and to get you to a place to see that your only hope in this life and the life to come is in Him. And then not just to see it as like, oh, I guess it's the only option. But as you grow in your relationship with Him, to see it as like, whoa, this is not the only option for salvation. There's nothing better. That's the kind of hope that we have in Him. He loves you. Think about that. Think about how rebellious and stubborn and stiff-necked and hard-hearted we are, not just towards God, but towards our family or our friends. And God sees that. And they, you know, in our way of thinking, we think that guy deserves nothing. No soup for you. <laughs> That's how we would be. But yet God, he loves you. He looks at you with love, with mercy and compassion. And he just says, if only you would trust in me like that. If only you would look up to your God and see that in him, he's not a harsh master. He is a loving God, a merciful God. Do you not want to put your hope and your trust in your life in His hands? He loves you. He has moved heaven and earth to spend eternity with you. How will you respond? What will you believe about the God that made you, about the God that put Himself on the cross in your place? But the God who is seated right now working and engaging and never tiring, never ceasing to see not only you, but your loved ones and your neighbors and your enemies and the, the Trudeaus and the Trumps and the Bidens of the world even come to a saving faith in Christ. That's what he's doing right now. What, what, what are you a part of and how do you look upon God today? How will you respond? What will you believe? Because what you believe actually does matter. Your life today and your life tomorrow and the wages of your sin from yesterday all hang simply on what you believe, not what you have done. It's incredible that God would be that merciful towards us. I'm going to invite the music team to come up. They're going to close us in a song, but let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we... Um, we've opened your word. Uh, Romans 9 is... is um, it's not an easy chapter. It's, um, it's dense. <laughs> it uses a lot of uh, language and examples that are so distant from us today in our modern-day society. And yet, the message of Romans 9 is timeless. 
It jumps right up into our present day and wrestles and analyzes and calls to account the attitudes and the posture of our heart and the thoughts and the beliefs of our mind to call them to account and to bring them into the light of your gospel and to let your gospel shine on us, Lord. And I pray that we would let that light in. I pray that we would let the, your character and your uh, resume of your intervention and your mercy on humanity into our lives and our hearts and we'd allow your gospel to be applied not just to our sin but to also to our vocation, to our calling in this world that we would let your mercy and compassion be known by us and be known through us, Lord. Help us today to be your church in all of these ways and more to be a people of faith that believe and trust in your word, in your work on the cross, and the hope that is to come through Christ. Build us up anew in faith today, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand.